Chapter Seventeen of the Seven Secrets by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seventeen discusses several matters. Reader, I know that what I have narrated is astounding. It astounded me just as it astounded you. But there are moments when one's brain becomes dulled by sudden bewilderment at sight of the absolutely impossible. It certainly seemed beyond credence that the man whose fatal and mysterious wound I had myself examined should be there, walking with his wife in lover-like attitude, and yet there was no question that the pair were there. A small bush separated us so that they passed arm in arm within three feet of me. As I have already explained, the moon was so bright that I could see to read. Therefore, shining full upon their faces, it was impossible to mistake the features of two persons whom I knew so well. Fortunately they had not overheard my involuntary exclamation of astonishment, or if they had, both evidently believed it to be one of the many distorted sounds of the night. Upon Mary's face there revealed a calm expression of perfect content, different indeed from the tearful countenance of a few hours before, while her husband, gray-faced and serious, just as he had been before his last illness, had her arm linked in his, and walked with her, whispering some low indistinct words, which brought to her lips a smile of perfect felicity. Now, had I been a superstitious man, I should have promptly declared the whole thing to have been an apparition. But as I do not believe in borderland theories any more than I believe that a man whose heart is nearly cut in twain can again breathe and live, I could only stand aghast, bewildered, and utterly dumbfounded. Hidden from them by a low thorn-bush, I stood in silent stupefaction as they passed by. That it was no chimera of the imagination was proved by the fact that their footsteps sounded upon the path, and just as they had passed I heard Courtney address his wife by name. The transformation of her countenance from the ineffable picture of grief and sorrow to the calm, sweet expression of content had been marvelous, to say the least an event stranger indeed than any I had ever before witnessed. In the wild writings of the old romancers the dead have sometimes been resuscitated, but never in this workaday world of ours. There is a finality in death that is decisive. Yet as I here write these lines I stake my professional reputation that the man I saw was the same whom I had seen dead in that upper room in queue. I knew his gait, his cough, and his countenance too well to mistake his identity. That night's adventure was certainly the most startling, and at the same time the most curious that ever befell a man. Thus I became seized with curiosity, and at risk of detection crept forth from my hiding-place, and looked out after them. To betray my presence would be to bar from myself any chance of learning the secret of it all. Therefore I was compelled to exercise the greatest caution. Mary mourned the loss of her husband towards the world, and yet met him in secret at night, wandering with him by that solitary by-path along which no villager ever passed after dark, and lovers avoided because of the popular tradition that a certain unfortunate lady of the manor of a century ago walked there. In the fact of the morning so well feigned, 
I detected the concealment of some remarkable secret. The situation was, without doubt, an extraordinary one. The man upon whose body I had made a post-mortem examination was alive and well, walking with his wife, although for months before his assassination he had been a bedridden invalid. Such a thing was startling, incredible. Little wonder was it that at first I could scarce believe my own eyes. Only when I looked full into his face and recognized his features with all their senile peculiarities did the amazing truth become impressed upon me. Around the bend in the river I stole stealthily after them in order to watch their movements, trying to catch their conversation, although, unfortunately, it was in too low an undertone. He never released his arm or changed his affectionate attitude towards her, but appeared to be relating to her some long and interesting chain of events to which she listened with rapt attention. Along the river's edge, out in the open moonlight, it was difficult to follow them without risk of observation. Now and then the elder bushes and drooping willows afforded cover beneath their deep shadow, but in places where the river wound through the open water meadows my presence might at any moment be detected. Therefore the utmost ingenuity and caution were necessary. Having made the staggering discovery, I was determined to thoroughly probe the mystery. The tragedy of old Mr. Courtney's death had resolved itself into a romance of the most mysterious and startling character. As I crept forward over the grass, mostly on tiptoe, so as to avoid the sound of my footfalls, I tried to form some theory to account for the bewildering circumstance, but could discern absolutely none. Mary was still wearing her mourning, but about her head was wrapped a white silk shawl, and on her shoulders a small fur cape, for the spring night was chilly. Her husband had on a dark overcoat and soft felt hat of the type he always wore, and carried in his hand a light walking-stick. Once or twice he halted when he seemed to be impressing his words the more forcibly upon her, and then I was compelled to stop also and to conceal myself. I would have given much to overhear the trend of their conversation, but strive how I would, I was unable. They seemed to fear eavesdroppers, and only spoke in low half-whispers. I noticed how old Mr. Courtney kept from time to time glancing around him, as though in fear of detection. Hence I was in constant dread lest he should look behind him and discover me slinking along their path. I am by no means an adept at following persons, but in this case the stake was so great, the revelation of some startling and unparalleled mystery, that I strained every nerve and every muscle to conceal my presence while pushing forward after them. Picture to yourself for a moment my position the whole of my future happiness, and consequently my prosperity in life, was at stake at that instant. To clear up the mystery successfully might be to clear my love of the awful stigma upon her. To watch and to listen was the only way, but the difficulties in the dead silence of the night were well-nigh insurmountable, for I dare not approach sufficiently near to catch a single word. I had crept on after them for about a mile, until we were approaching the tumbling waters of the weir. The dull roar swallowed up the sound of their voices, but it assisted me, for I had no further need to tread noiselessly. On nearing the lock-keeper's cottage, a little whitewashed house wherein the inmates were sleeping soundly, they made a wide detour around the meadow 
in order to avoid the chance of being seen. Mary was well known to the old lockkeeper who had controlled those great sluices for thirty years or more, and she knew that at night he was often compelled to be on duty, and might at that very moment be sitting on the bench outside his house, smoking his short clay. I, however, had no such fear. Stepping lightly upon the grass beside the path, I went past the house and continued onward by the riverside, passing at once into the deep shadow of the willows which effectually concealed me. The pair were walking at the same slow, deliberate pace beneath the high hedge on the further side of the meadow, evidently intending to rejoin the river path some distance further up. This gave me an opportunity to get on in front of them, and I seized it without delay, for I was anxious to obtain another view of the face of the man whom I had for months believed to be in his grave. Keeping in the shadow of the trees and bushes that overhung the stream, I sped onward for ten minutes or more until I came to the boundary of the great pasture, passing through the swing-gate by which I felt confident that they must also pass. I turned to look before leaving the meadow and could just distinguish their figures. They had turned at right angles and, as I had expected, were walking in my direction. Forward I went again, and after some hurried search discovered a spot close to the path where concealment behind a great old tree seemed possible. So at that coin of vantage I waited breathlessly for their approach. The roaring of the waters behind would, I feared, prevent any of their words from reaching me. Nevertheless, I waited anxiously. A great barn owl flapped lazily past, hooting weirdly as it went. Then all nature became still again, save the dull sound of the tumbling flood. Ambler Jevons, had he been with me, would no doubt have acted differently. But it must be remembered that I was the merest tyro in the unraveling of a mystery, whereas with him it was a kind of natural occupation. And yet would he believe me when I told him that I had actually seen the dead man walking there with his wife? I was compelled to admit within myself that such a statement from the lips of any man would be received with incredulity. Indeed, had such a thing been related to me, I should have put the narrator down as either a liar or a lunatic. At last they came. I remained motionless, standing in the shadow, not daring to breathe. My eyes were fixed upon him, my ears strained to catch every sound. He said something to her. What it was I could not gather. Then he pushed open the creaking gate to allow her to pass. Across the moon's face had drifted a white fleecy cloud, therefore the light was not so brilliant as half an hour before. Still I could see his features almost as plainly as I see this paper upon which I am penning my strange adventure, and could recognize every lineament and peculiarity of his countenance. Having passed through the gate he took her ungloved hand with an air of old-fashioned gallantry and raised it to his lips. She laughed merrily in rapturous content and then slowly, very slowly, they strolled along the path that ran within a few feet of where I stood. My heart leapt with excitement. Their voices sounded above the rushing of the waters, and they were lingering as though unwilling to walk further. Ethelwyn has told me,' he was saying, "'I can't make out the reason of his coldness towards her. Poor girl, she seems utterly heartbroken.' "'He suspects,' his wife replied. But what ground has he for suspicion? I stood there transfixed. 
they were talking of myself. They had halted quite close to where I was, and in that low roar had raised their voices so that I could distinguish every word. Well, remarked his wife, the whole affair was mysterious, that you must admit. With his friend, a man named Jevons, he has been endeavoring to solve the problem. A curse on Ambler Jevons, he blurted forth in anger, as though he were well acquainted with my friend. If between them they managed to get at the truth, it would be very awkward, she said. No fear of that, he laughed in full confidence. A man once dead and buried, with a coroner's verdict upon him, is not easily believed to be alive and well. No, my dear, rest assured that these men will never get at our secret. Never. I smiled within myself. How little did he dream that the man of whom he had been speaking was actually overhearing his words. But Ethelwyn, in order to regain her place in the doctor's heart, may betray us, his wife remarked dubiously. She dare not, was the reply. From her we have nothing whatever to fear. As long as you keep up the appearance of deep mourning, are discreet in all your actions, and exercise proper caution on the occasions when we meet, our secret must remain hidden from all. But I am doubtful of Ethelwyn. A woman as fondly in love with a man as she is with Ralph is apt to throw discretion to the winds, the woman observed. Recollect that the breach between them is on our account and that a word from her could expose the whole thing, and at the same time bring back to her the man for whose lost love she is pining. It is because of that I am in constant fear. Your apprehensions are entirely groundless, he declared in a decisive voice. She's the only person in the secret besides ourselves, but to betray us would be fatal to her. She may consider that she has made sufficient self-sacrifice then all the greater reason why she should remain silent. She has her reputation to lose by divulging. By his argument she appeared only half convinced, for I saw upon her brow a heavy, thoughtful expression similar to that I had noticed when sitting opposite her at dinner. The reason of her constant preoccupation was that she feared that her sister might give me the clue to her secret that a remarkable conspiracy had been in progress was now made quite plain, and further one very valuable fact I had ascertained was that Ethelwyn was the only other person who knew the truth and yet dared not reveal it. This man who stood before me was old Mr. Courtney, without a doubt. That being so, who could have been the unfortunate man who had been struck to the heart so mysteriously? So strange and complicated were all the circumstances, and so cleverly had the chief actors in the drama arranged its details that Courtney himself was convinced that for others to learn the truth was utterly impossible. Yet it was more than remarkable that he sought not to disguise his personal appearance if he wished to remain dead to the world. Perhaps, however, being unknown in that rural district, for he once had told me that he had never visited his wife's home since his marriage, he considered himself perfectly safe from recognition. Besides, from their conversation, I gathered that they only met on rare occasions, and certainly Mary kept up the fiction of mourning with the greatest assiduity. I recollected what old Mrs. Mivart had told me of her daughter's erratic movements, of her short mysterious absences with her dressing-bag and without a maid. 
It was evident that she made flying visits in various directions in order to meet her dead husband. Courtney spoke again after a brief silence, saying, I had no idea that the doctor was down here, or I should have kept away. To be seen by him would expose the whole affair. I was quite ignorant of his visit until I went in to dinner and found him already seated at the table, she answered. But he will leave tomorrow. He said tonight that to remain away from his patients for a single day was very difficult. Is he down here in pursuance of his inquiries, do you think? suggested her husband. He may be. Mother evidently knew of his impending arrival, but told me nothing. I was annoyed, for he was the very last person I wished to meet. Well, he'll go in the morning, so we have nothing to fear. He's safe enough in bed, and sleeping soundly, confound him. The temptation was great to respond aloud to the compliment, but I refrained, laughing within myself, at the valuable information I was obtaining. End of chapter 17 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com